Um, yes, you should do laundry. And I didn't do very much in college, and I used to bring home pillowcases of pillowcases stuffed with dirty clothes that, yes, my mom did a lot of it. So I just never had enough quarters, so it really was not my fault. Um, but then you also heard uh, Hope said that one of the things that we know about Scripture and the New Testament and the Gospels is that Jesus really didn't answer questions. He asked about 300 to 310 questions, but they would say that depending on how you understand questions of what disciples or crowds or individuals asked him, Jesus only answers something like seven questions. But he asks 300 of us. So I um, enjoy Ask the Pastor. It's just response. They're my responses, mine alone, to some things that maybe are questions on your mind. They're not really answers. They're responses. So Amy, I turn it over to you. Can you hear me? Is this on? Okay, great. I noticed the pounding stopped, which is a great way to start. So um, we'll proceed. I wanted to say I stopped by Rich's office this morning and said, you know, Rich, do a lot of your pastor colleagues do this format, ask the pastor. And he thought about it for a minute and he said, um, no, they do not. Uh, and they talk about it, but they many do not actually do it. So <laughs> yeah. thankful that Rich is open to this um, fun and interesting format. So I'm going to start with a little bit easy one, oh, start with the softball. This is, I can tell by the handwriting, which is the sweetest handwriting I've ever seen. It's probably from a younger member. And they ask, how are you? Wow, I love that question. How am I? Uh, I'm wonderful. First and foremost, it's wonderful to be gathered together, um, to wait and to worship God in worship. It's a joy to be with you. I, that I think I can respond for Catherine and Meredith and Kathy and Caitlin and, and everyone as well. It is a joy to be together in worship. But many of you know that I just returned about a week ago from a time of rest, uh, a sabbatical, in which I was relieved of the rhythm and pattern and the schedule uh, for those two months, and that was such a gift. And I was restored and rested. And a friend of mine, about a week before my sabbatical, who is, who um, called me and said, "So are you excited to go back?" And I said, "I really am," and so I'm I'm delighted. So thank you for asking, and I'm I'm doing really well. And yes, we're excited to become grandparents. Very excited. So. Okay, our next question is, will everyone be forgiven everything? So how am I, you're asking? <laughs> will everyone be forgiven everything? Is that right? Will everyone be forgiven everything? I don't know. I hope so. I think so. That's my sense. But one of the things that I think is important when we ask questions about forgiveness is to um, distinguish between what we might think of as God's forgiveness and the forgiveness that we extend to each other. Those are two very different um, experiences and groups. God's forgiveness, we have affirmed consistently, is all forgiving. When Jesus is asked, how many times should I forgive? Um, I don't know if he's in reference to us, but it's also perhaps a glimpse of what God's forgiveness is like. And uh, Peter asks, Jesus saying, should I forgive as many as seven times? And that seems a lot, right? And my sense has always been that Peter was probably trying to say, no one can really forgive that many times. I'm just so good. I'm going to say to Jesus seven times. And Jesus says, no, 
I say 70 times seven times. And don't do the math. It's not supposed to be, do you know your multiplication tables? Jesus is saying we forgive more than we can count, than we can keep track of. And in several of the parables, Jesus um, lifts up people who not um, have, com- have done something wrong, done, committed a sin, uh, doesn't lift them up as the ones who are being punished. The ones that he chastises in the story are those who keep track of how many times they might forgive someone. Uh, there's, in a couple of the parables, that happens. And so in our forgiveness, we're called to continue to extend forgiveness to each other. But there's no time. No one says it's time to forgive. You should be forgiving that person by now. We're human, and we're on different timelines. But God's forgiveness, I hope, is eternal and full. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know that in in the African-American spirituals, there's a strange and peculiar line in one of the African-American spirituals where they sing, when I get to heaven, I'm going to love poor Judas' head. Judas in heaven is what they're singing of. So my hope is that yes, and my belief, and I think scripture witnesses to it, that God is an all-forgiving God. But our journey in this life is to um, discern not how many times do we forgive, but how do we go about forgiving each other. Okay, the next question is, what are your thoughts about the January 6th events at the Capitol? What are my thoughts about the January 6th events at the Capitol? Um, I think it is, in an overarching model, a continu- um, an absolute breach of trust and what democracy is based on. Um, you can use whatever language you want. People can argue, was it an insurrection? Um, that's sort of a legal term in some respects. I, I won't go into that. But I think it was a breach, a profound breach of civil uh, trust in a nation. Perhaps for me, the most appalling piece of it was to see people um, carrying flags of the Christian church uh, during that. I think that stands as an antithesis to what Jesus teaches us and also to what our society lifts up as what it means to be a pluralistic society where we recognize that we're all created in God's image, um, equally just as as we are. Um, But frankly, personally, I was appalled by it, um, stunned by it. I thought it was one of the um, saddest moments of my life. Thank you. How about this one? What does our uh, First Congo of Western Springs, what does our post-pandemic church look like? Any predictions or thoughts on the future? What does our post-pandemic church look like? And us in particular, First Mm -hmm. Congregational. Um, It's going to look a little like it used to look, and it's going to look probably a little different. In general, I mean, I'm going to start with maybe a broader picture about this. Most church uh, sociologists and demographers have said that in the next 20 years, roughly 50% of Protestant churches in America will close. So one half of the current Protestant churches in America will close. 
Part of that is, is the growth of, you have heard me say this in sermons and talk about it, ask the pastor and other places, a group that they used to call, demograph, demographers used to call it the nuns, that is when they would check their religious, um, um, their religious denomination or, or religion, they would, might check Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Sikh, there was always Buddhist, there was all kinds of, of choices, or some would check none. Um, they make up about maybe 30% of the United States. Uh, 20 years ago, they made up about 12%. It's, the, it's one of the most uh, huge demographic shifts in the last 20 years. But now they're using a different word. Instead of nuns, they're calling them don'ts. Don'ts. And they're made up of three kind of don'ts. Don't believe, which is probably atheists and might be some agnostics. Don't belong, which means they might be people who have a sense that there's a spirit beyond us, but they don't belong to any religion, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever. And the last one, and there are increasingly large number, there's remember, don't, don't believe, don't belong, don't care. That's their response, don't care. Don't think about believing, don't care to think about believing, don't care. Now they would say that's about 37% of the US population. I mean, it's an astonishing number, people who are don'ts. Um, so that harkens back to the, the piece, I, the first thing I said is, that's why demographers say, and those numbers are increasing almost every time they're surveyed, uh, that 50% of Protestant churches will close in the next 20 years. But our congregation, I think, will continue to seek to be a congregation um, that wishes to live out Jesus' love and justice in the world as faithfully as we're able. I have high hopes for our congregation. It's going to be, I believe, ministering to the world and to each other for years to come. We are a, a strong and growing congregation. We even have grown during the pandemic. But the post-pandemic will include and you probably already know this. How many of you have ever watched anything digital from our church? Vespers, Sunday morning worship? How many of you have watched? Okay, well, that's going to be a part of who we are going forward. Will we gather for in-person, incarnational worship? We will always do that. But there will be lots of people that for the incarnation of worship will be gathered with a loved one or a friend or even by themselves gathered with us perhaps from a summer home, perhaps from they're unable to make it to church. The digital piece of, of our worship will, our worship, digital pieces of our life, of our church life together, will continue to play an important and probably expanding role. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people were zoomed out. I have a hunch that we'll probably do something like the Vespers that we did during Lent. It was 15 minutes at 7.30 on a cold February night. We'll do those by Zoom, I bet, for years to come. We would have 30 to 40 people in Vespers, um, sometimes even with their children snuggled up in their children's bed for 15 minutes to hear scripture and prayers. Things like that have actually opened up opportunities to us. And I think we are going to continue to be a, a vital and faithful congregation. I think we'll continue to grow spiritually. We may even continue to grow numerically. But I do think digital will play a part. So. so the next question is, where did you see God's love 
um, during your time away this summer. And I'd say a related question is, um, how was your trip to the Boundary Waters? I think you weren't able to go this year. So just any favorite memories of the Boundary Waters? And then just where did you see God's love during your time well, away? Well, that is a great question. Where did I see God's love? And um, it's a question that we asked our children sometimes at the end of the day, instead of saying prayers, we would ask them to think about where they saw God that day. And, um, and then I'll respond to the Boundary Waters, having been there many times and finding that, for me, most profoundly spiritual place I've ever encountered. Um, I experienced God in gestures of kindness and love and generosity of spirit. And throughout that sabbatical, I would bump into all kinds of you on the street and people weren't sure if they should come up and check in how I was doing. But one time somebody just um, patted me on the shoulder and said, um, I was about to go into the hardware store. I think this person, I won't say who it was, was actually coming from Kirschbaum's, but that's all right, that's a great place too. And um, patted me on the shoulder and said, um, I hope you are having a restful and blessed sabbatical. And just strolled on. I mean, it's moments like that, that it's not always in words. In fact, sometimes it's seldom in words. I think God certainly speaks to us more profoundly in, in actions and, and glimpses because the Bible, in the end, is simply an imperfect attempt to, com to sort of communicate what it means to have a strangely warmed heart, some experience of, of God's love, and you try to put it into words. Uh, and um, I had a lot of those. And you know what? Some of the, some of the sweetest moments were moments of rest that Claire and I had because our my schedule, her schedule was so busy, but my schedule was much less busy, and we were able to have more quiet and um, restful meals. It was, um, that was a, a genuine gift. Um, as for the Boundary Waters, we weren't able to go this year, though we did um, spend some time hiking in New Hampshire, and we were out in Connecticut, and made our way to Michigan a lot. But yes, the Boundary Waters are a touchstone for me. They are the most profoundly spiritual place I've, that I've ever experienced. Um, it's why I have a paddle, in my, a canoe paddle in my office. And um, I, uh, I, live, I live through it sort of this summer vicariously because our youngest, Caroline, is actually in the Boundary Waters right now. And she went with four of her friends and all of our children have grown to love the Boundary Waters as well and have been multiple times. And here is what I do have, and I hope to go with our men's group. I think it'll be next Labor Day, a year from now. Um, but here's what it is. I first went to the Boundary Waters as a young adult leader on a PF trip when I was 21. Um, I'm 62. In nine years, that will be the 50th anniversary of my first trip to the Boundary Waters. And I've made my children promise that not only will they expand their families in the next nine years, but we will all go to, they will take me to the Boundary Waters on that 50th anniversary. So I got that going for me. Perfect. We are out of time. I okay. think that's a great ending point. And Rich, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Amen. <laughs>